Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. I'm talking with Aaron Sikorsky, the director of the Center for Climate Insecurity. This was a fascinating discussion for me. Erin is in the thick of many national security conversations. Erin shares with us her group's recommendations to the Biden administration on how the government should approach national security in the lens of climate change. We also talk about why climate change is not treated as urgently as the threat it represents. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, so buckle up. Okay, upcoming episodes. I'm collaborating with the Natural Resource Defense Council and the Anthropocene Alliance on an episode where we talk with community members impacted firsthand by major flooding events and what actions they are taking in response. Also, Dr. Catherine Mock from the University of Miami joins to discuss the recently released IPCC report and the chapter on adaptation. We'll also discover what Colorado is doing around adaptation and talking with some key local government people doing adaptation work and people working in the State Office of Resiliency. Looking forward to sharing their story. Great stuff on the way. Hey, Adapters. Are you always looking to discover something new or pick up a new skill? Well, I found the Motherload tool to help with these things. Wondrium. Wondrium is a subscription video service with content on just about any topic. Wondrium is focused on helping us become better versions of ourselves. When I'm not watching Wondrium series on topics like climate change, quantum physics, or even national security, I like to explore other more fun areas of learning. I'm enjoying the series, The Everyday Guide to Wine. I'll be honest, I'm always jealous when I see someone who knows what they are talking about when enjoying a fine bottle of wine. I probably can't tell the difference between two buck chuck and a hundred dollar bottle of Pinot. But now I'm getting some of those basic skills with this wine series. There are episodes like A Taster's Toolkit. Or you could learn about the various regions around the world that produce the best wines. Sorry, Arizona, you don't make the list. Australia, yes. The state of Georgia, no. Shocking to say the least. Folks, you will learn the wine fundamentals in this 24-part series. Stop embarrassing yourself during cocktail parties. Come prepared. And if you're single, add that skill to your profile. We all consume information in a variety of ways. Wondrium has you covered. There's a Wondrium app, and you can watch or listen just like a podcast. They also make it easy so you can toggle back and forth between devices, your computer, smartphone, your internet-connected TV. Think about it. You're on day three of your conference. You're overdosing on bad PowerPoint presentations, and your brain is craving something new and interesting. Find a comfortable corner and enjoy all the options on Wondrium that you can watch on your phone. You'll find video tutorials that teach you new hobbies like photography, cooking, crafting, and many others. All of Wondrium's content is world-class incredible, presented by experts who all know their stuff. And it's always ad-free. Sign up for Wondrium today. Wondrium is offering my listeners a free trial plus 20% off the annual plan. To get this offer, you need to visit my special URL, wondrium.com slash adapts. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash adapts. Sign up today. Okay, now let's join Aaron Sikorsky and learn why climate change is increasingly becoming a major national security threat. Hey, Adapters. Today I have a very exciting episode. Joining me is Aaron Sikorsky. Aaron is the director of the Center for Climate Insecurity. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I've talked about national security a couple times, but really just scratching the surface. And you're there at the center, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I just found myself having too many questions, and I had to go back and cut them. But let's just start off by giving us a a really broad overview of the center. 
Sure. So the Center for Climate Insecurity has been around for a little over a decade, and it comes at the climate change issue from a security perspective. We are comprised of folks who worked in the national security community, either in the military or at the State Department or the intelligence community, who saw climate change again and again coming up in their work and shaping the landscape of security risks. So we are a nonprofit, nonpartisan research institute. We do analysis looking at the intersection of climate change and security in certain geographies around the world. We do policy recommendations, right? Okay, if we can all agree on the risks, then what should Washington or Brussels or London do about it? And then we also convene a community of interest here in Washington, the Climate Security Working Group, which brings together those policymakers and practitioners and academics who are all working on some aspect of climate change and national security. And we help that group convene and and come together and think about how to address these challenges. So it's a really exciting place to work. And I really enjoy the expertise of the folks I get to engage with on a daily basis. All right. You talked a little bit about who is participating in this, but what about you personally? What's your background? How did you get to where you're at when, you know, national security and now you're doing climate change work? What briefly sort of talk about your journey that got you into this position? Sure, sure. So I come out actually of the U.S. intelligence community. I worked for over a decade, first at the CIA and then on the U.S. National Intelligence Council in an analytic capacity. So I wasn't, you know, James Bond traveling the world, but I was analyzing intelligence and primarily on sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. I was leading teams that were looking at risks of conflict and terrorism and instability in those parts of the world. And time and again, as we did our analysis, environmental and climate issues kept coming to the fore as things shaping the landscape, right, and affecting risks of violence and conflict. And we didn't have a lot of capacity, frankly, within the intelligence community to really understand or or do a better job of looking at the, the climate change nexus there at the time. So I went to the National Intelligence Council. I did more work on strategic foresight. I worked on a project called Global Trends which looks out 20 years into the future. It's unclassified, looks at key trends and uncertainties shaping the national security landscape. And I led the climate and environment analysis on that report. And I just got more and more interested in exploring this issue and and understanding how we in the U.S. needed to reshape our look at security and understanding of security given you know, the impacts of climate change. So I left the government in December of 2020 because I wanted not only to analyze the risks, which is what you do in the intelligence community, but I also wanted to work on policy solutions. And that you can't do in the intelligence community. So I I knew of the Center for Climate and Security and its work, and they had an opportunity as they were growing. And it just was really a, a great fit to continue to move these issues going forward. And you guys have a lot of great resources, and I encourage my listeners to just go to the website. And I'll have links in the show notes and such, but you guys really produce a ton of stuff. It doesn't even look like you have a, a huge staff there, and you guys are just churning <laughs> out a lot of information. So highly encourage people to check that out. Now, Aaron, what I want to accomplish here too is I know people in the national security space listen to this podcast, but a lot more people are outside that. And what I'm hoping to do is what the work that you're doing in this whole national security conversation, I want to make it relevant to them. You're a landscape architect, you're an urban planner. 
how is this relevant to what they're doing? And I want you to kind of keep that in the back of your head too, as we go through this, because it's all related. And, and that's what I'm really hoping to accomplish with this episode. And so let's just dig into some of the policy. And I think you mentioned one of the climate security groups, but there's a climate security advisory group. Is that what you just mentioned? Or is that a different group? That's a different group. I think there's a climate security advisory council that was stood up by Congress actually a few years ago. It was legislated by Congress. And the goal of this group is to connect scientists within the U.S. government, the scientific agencies that are working on climate change with the U.S. intelligence community and its agencies to make sure that those groups are sharing information, sharing best practices, building a common language and understanding of when we say risk, what are we talking about, right? Because I think there's a growing recognition in Congress and and elsewhere that when you talk about U.S. national security and threats to the homeland, for example, Climate change is increasingly at the top of the list of things that will impact Americans' safety and security. And so leveraging Cool Belt, which includes an amazing scientific community at NASA and NOAA and the U.S. Geological Survey, and making sure the national security community is able to draw on their expertise and, and link those things together. Because as you say, it is all connected and what's happening here in, in America's backyard is a national security concern. And we need new tools and new ways of working together within the government to, to recognize that changing landscape. Okay. And one of the resources you shared with me that the advisory group produced was this climate security plan that came out in 2019. And then you guys just released a 2022 update, obviously a different administration. We are not going to be able to go in the weeds on that report, but can you broadly talk about what's in there and kind of give people incentive to go poke around in it? Sure, absolutely. And Doug, I realize you were asking about this advisory group and I talked about the advisory council. There are so many different oh, <laughs> names oh, and titles yeah. titles for groups happening. I apologize about that. So the advisory council is a government group that I was just referencing. The advise, or, <laughs> That's the advisory council. The advisory group, which put out this report, okay, okay. is a non-governmental group. Yes. So yeah, the climate security advisory group is a group of retired and former national security leaders who all recognize the risks posed by by climate change. And so the report that we put out, Challenge Accepted, did two things. It evaluated the Biden administration's first year in office and how they had done on national security and climate change. And the grade that we gave them, I would say, is probably an A minus B plus of, you know, you've you've written a lot of reports, you've said a lot of good things, and now we need to take action on those things. And then the second part of the report was what, what action should you take? A bunch of lists of, of recommendations going forward. And I would say the overall theme of the report is integration right? Bringing a climate lens to existing national security strategies, national policies. Don't just put climate change off in its own office somewhere, right? Separate from everything else you're doing in homeland security or in the Middle East or in sub-Saharan Africa, but instead integrate climate into those strategies and, and plans because it is a shaping, we call it a shaping threat, right? It is changing that landscape in which all of these other things that we care about, all of these other national security risks are unfolding. And so being able to bring that climate perspective, whether you're making resilience plans at military bases here in the United States, or whether you're developing a strategy to compete with China in the Indo-Pacific, you got to bring in that, that climate piece. And that was really the focus of that report, which was signed on to by over 70 
national security leaders and officials, including, you know, a former head of the CIA, including four-star generals, in, including former ambassadors who all see this risk to, to the United States. Okay. And so we're going to come back to that through this conversation, just different policy discussions, but I encourage people, it's very readable, very, you, you get exactly what you're recommending. Sometimes reports, you're like, where am I? What are you doing here? And so you guys <laughs> did a really good job. And it, the report itself is, isn't actually that long. When you first sent it to me, I'm like, all right, another 50 page report I have to go through. <laughs> Not like that at all. So it was very practical in that sense. We're going to talk about that report in the context of maybe some of these other issues, but I think what it's going to be, I think, helpful, but again, back to this notion of how the work that you're doing is relevant, maybe to other people who don't necessarily see the connection is I want to just dig into this. And so let me just jump in. You guys are nonpartisan. And let's talk about this because a lot of people out there, let's say you are an urban planner in a small city. A lot of people struggle with this notion of climate change. It's still a very political issue. How are you guys approaching? How did you make it a nonpartisan issue? Right. I think one of the ways that we approached that was just looking at what was happening to U.S. military bases, for example, here in the U.S. When you have hurricanes on the Gulf Coast that have decimated Tyndall Air Force Base a few years ago, right, and caused billions of dollars of damage, everyone can see that and can touch that and recognize that that cost is unacceptable and poses real readiness risks for the U.S. military because not only did it take out a whole bunch of very expensive fighter jets, but it also then interrupted training activities and took time away from the things we really need the military to focus on at its core. And so that is a message that resonates on both sides of the aisle on Capitol Hill. And there's a recognition that building resilience, building readiness to these climate impacts is something that that we all can agree on. And we've seen that in the National Defense Authorization Act, which is a must-pass piece of legislation every year, which funds the U.S. military, there has been bipartisan support for better resilience funding for the military, requiring reports from the military on how they're evaluating all of their bases and the impacts that climate change will have on them, how they are making sure that the communities in which the bases are located are also then benefiting from any resilience measures that that we put in at these bases. And that's something, particularly for members of Congress that have military bases in their backyard or are concerned about this, we, we found real resonance there because it's about climate change's role in interrupting the core duties of the military, right? And I think that can translate to other issues in the country as well, whether it's the economy or public safety in local communities and the role that climate hazards are playing. Yeah, I think people in the adaptation space, it's a little advantageous. It's a little bit easier sell, getting a bit more bipartisan support for doing things. It's just that tricky conversation, getting that nonpartisan support on the mitigation side. And this was a good transition. I think you know this is coming. You guys have a frequently asked question part of your website. And we talked about this a little bit before, but I want to ask it here in this episode is what's more important for security, climate change, adaptation or mitigation? It's a good question, and I'm going to give you a very DC answer where I say that it's both. But but I think it's the timescales in which you're operating, right? In the near term, adaptation is critical because even if all emissions were cut tomorrow, the impacts because of the amount of carbon currently in the, the atmosphere on security concerns around the world will need to be dealt with, right, in the next few decades. And so we have to adapt to that. Again, particularly, I mean, we saw the heat waves in recent weeks in India and Pakistan. I mean, climate change hazards are already there. And those security risks that stem from that we have to deal with today. So adaptation is critical. But if 
you don't mitigate in the long term, then the security risks in the second half of the century are catastrophic, right? So we got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. I think more investment and focus on adaptation, though, frankly, from the national security community is folks like at the State Department at USAID is really important to make sure they're not only focusing on mitigation. Yeah. And I think in that answer, you said you give a very DC answer and it sort of puts I think, <laughs> both on the same level and what you just described, just, you know, adaptation obviously is going to be more important, I guess, in the short term. And I just try to get in the, the, the mind of you're an Intel officer or whatever. And you're the idea of creating some urgency. And it's like, you're not worried about mitigation right now. There's these adaptations, these resilience issues that are leading to all sorts of trouble. And how does that filter out in policy if things are on a level playing field? And again, absolute agreement, you got to get the mitigation side. But when you're actually making policy recommendations in the short and midterm, that gets a little trickier. And I think you sort of just explained it, but that, I, <laughs> as you can tell, I, I have my bias in that. So. <laughs> Sure, sure. And I mean, you're, you're exactly right, though, because like, again, look at the National Guard in the US and the number of man hours or person hours that they're putting into fighting fires now compared to just five years ago. I mean, it's grown significantly. And that's a today problem, right? And so figuring out ways to adapt to that today problem is critical for US security and isn't the answer there isn't cutting emissions, right? Because those fires are going to happen this summer. So we need adaptation quickly and smartly to manage that. I'm with you. you. You can't just keep putting it off to the future. I still love the question, though. I thought it was just such a simple question. I'm like, all right, I haven't really heard that <laughs> asked too much. Okay, you gave the U.S. government, at least Biden's first year, an A minus B plus on some of the climate work. But are there countries, and I think that's very probably generous, that they are doing good things, but it's, it remains to be seen. But <laughs> on climate there, security, on climate security. Climate so security, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> are there countries that have integrated climate change well with national security? Are there countries out there that you visit and you talk to people there and you're like, holy cow, they've got it all together. It's integrated. I mean, are there any at all? I will say, I think the United States, especially the Department of Defense, is a real leader globally on this and has a lot to offer other countries for best practices. I do think the UK has done some good work on climate security and defense. Canada as well has been thinking about this. And France, too, is another one where they're working to integrate it. I think a lot of countries are kind of in the same around the same point in their pathway as, as the United States. You know, they've done the risk assessments. They understand the risks of instability and conflict and, and how terrorists can potentially gain in recruitment from climate impacts and things like that. And, and now they're doing the, the frankly harder work of, okay, what is this? What do we have to change about how we do business? NATO, the NATO alliance last summer released a climate change and security plan of action, which was pretty ambitious. I mean, the head of NATO, Jen Stoltenberg, used to be a climate negotiator, so he is pushing forward on these issues. And to be fair, too, it's not just Western countries. I mean, there are countries, Kenya, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa, has been doing some really interesting work using the military to build dams and do tree planting projects and address what they are concerned about violence between herders and farmers because of changing weather patterns and whatnot. And so there are pockets around the world where the security piece is being well integrated with the climate piece. But I think a lot of the work is still quite nascent. Okay, so that report, you're looking at how the federal government's doing on national security and climate change. Did you guys, because I think the timing here, I'm not sure if it was available, but all those 
agency department adaptation action plans came out in the fall. And was that part of your process? And I don't know if you got a chance. We covered that in this pot. Jesse Keenan came on and we went through every department and agency together. I think DOD did relatively well, but you, your team is obviously going to look at it in a different way. Have you looked at those? And if you have, do you feel like there's any lessons to be learned from other agencies that could benefit the more national security oriented agencies? Yeah, that's a good question. We have looked at those. I do actually think the, the Department of Defense did a great job on their adaptation plan. The, the question now is, are they going to get the money and the top cover to, to implement it, right? But the adaptation plan itself was quite well done. I think, to be frank, the State Department's adaptation plan lagged a bit because it was really focused on how do we protect our embassies and our infrastructure and our logistics, which are all important. But for the State Department, there are broader adaptation questions about, you know, their partnerships, bilateral relationships with countries, what kind of support can they offer to U.S. allies and partners in terms of adaptation, where might some of the risks be globally for conflict if we don't invest in adaptation. They didn't get into those questions, and I think they could do more on that front. I also think the Department of Homeland Security has done a pretty good job on their adaptation report. I was pleased to see them put climate change at the top of the list of threats to the homeland in the same way that they put terrorism at the top of the list. They're doing some innovative work that I actually think other security agencies could look at in terms of training programs for Department of Homeland Security employees so that folks who work in the agency get a better understanding of how climate change affects their day-to-day jobs and why they need to be able to to integrate it into their work. So there, there's room for improvement, obviously, <laughs> in everywhere, but I, I was pleased. I, I think DOD in particular has a strong plan. Well, the State Department, Jesse, <laughs> ripped the State Department too when he was assessing him. So <laughs> hopefully we'll see some improvement there. Okay, so I'm biased on this from just reading all sorts of books after 911 happened the you know with terrorism being elevated and it just seemed like there was a new book talking about how the different intelligence agencies dropped the ball or this one didn't talk to the, that one and it just occurred to me like what, what are you seeing that you're based there in DC but when it comes to climate change if it's being elevated by the CIA the Department of Defense you know even the FBI involved with these things are those agencies and departments talking to each other better, or at least around the issue of climate change? Is that even a thing that you can monitor? It's a good, it's a good question, right? And I don't have, I mean, none of us have full visibility into, right, right. into what they're doing. But I think I've seen a couple of signs that are positive. I think there's probably more to be done. The Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, when she testified during her confirmation hearings, when she's testified before Congress on the annual threat assessment, she has elevated climate change to a top security concern for the U.S. And I've seen other agency, he- other intelligence agency heads mention that the National Intelligence Estimate, which came out last fall, the, the unclassified version on climate change and national security. And, and for your listeners who don't know, a National Intelligence Estimate is the most important type of analytic report that the intelligence community puts out. It's only on the most important issues facing the U.S. It has to be agreed upon and coordinated with all 18 intelligence agencies. And this one was written in in response to a request from the president for such a report. So the fact that they did the report, that all 18 agencies agreed on the language, they released an unclassified version, 
that to me sends a good signal that this is a, a top priority. I think, though, one of the challenges is that climate change doesn't fit neatly into how the intelligence community has traditionally organized itself, right? They're very focused on regions. They've traditionally been very focused on secrets, understandably, and climate change is a different beast. Although I think the best analysis comes when you can marry that unclassified data about climate hazards with classified information about what countries might be doing or not doing about it, for example, or reacting to it. So I think there's still probably room for improvement and room for better coordination. Earlier this last year, the CIA announced publicly that they had stood up a new center that would be dealing with climate change issues, but it's dealing with climate change, global health, and technology. And my guess is of those three, it's the technology that really gets a lot of time and attention <laughs> and public health and climate change, maybe not so much. I think there's progress in part because Congress has, has pushed them to do it. But I worry some of that progress has the potential to be reversed too, depending on the political wins also. All right. So that's my next question was related to just climate science <laughs> typically is available. It's free. It's shared as much as possible. You're dealing with climate scientists. And so the notion of national security so much is related to top security clearance. And I could just see mm -hmm. a situation. It's my understanding that so much now is just labeled top security. So even if someone, you know, wants to share some information, like I'm not going to get thrown in jail because I shared this, you know, <laughs> climate report for this region because it's been deemed top secret. I don't know if there's is part of those reforms or just what is the notion of national security and this kind of data sharing? Because, and, and I think this is a recommendation with it, and maybe I have this wrong, but you have this within the report, initiate a climate security research agenda. Would that look to maybe deal with some of these issues of information sharing? Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, it's a broader question that the national security community and the intelligence community in particular is grappling with in a world of incredible amounts of data and information that are available publicly, right? If you look at some of the open source work people are doing on the battles in Ukraine, for example, it's, it's obsmacking, frankly, what people can do with just, you know, satellite imagery from Google. You know, what is the purpose of the, the intelligence community? And I, I think it's really about sense making, right? Of this information. The goal is to provide decision advantage to U.S. policymakers or provide warning. And so how do we do that? And how do we do that in a way with the open source data we have and not overclassifying information, I think is a good question. And I think it's something, I mean, the another new group that has been stood up is at the, the National Academies, actually, a, a climate security workshop, which, again, is meant to help the intelligence community get information from academics and scholars looking at climate change and climate security issues. And that won't necessarily be classified right? And it's inputs that, that the U.S. intelligence community can use to do its work. But I think it was a good sign that the national intelligence estimate was released publicly. And, and there may be a classified version with more detail, but the one that was released publicly is quite complete, right? You just, there's no big black marks anywhere Xing anything out. That's a good sign. And I, but I think this is just a broader question that will need to be dealt with going forward. And, and how do you leverage that open source information? All right. Maybe I should have asked this toward the beginning, but what climate impact most concerns you in the context of national security? What's sort of out there that you guys have really said, this is going to kind of get serious really quickly? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And my list sometimes is long of the things that, that keep me up at night. But, but the thing, the places where I'm the most concerned is where you already have very high tensions between 
two or more countries, and you're going to layer climate impacts on top of that, climate shocks on top of that, which I fear could tip some of these high tension relationships into potential violence or conflict. And I'll give you a, a key example of that is, is the India-China relationship. You've got two nuclear armed states that already have high levels of distrust. They've had skirmishes on their border in recent years where soldiers on both sides were killed. They share critical river basins that all originate in China. As temperatures warm, as ice melts in the glaciers and flooding patterns and flow patterns in those rivers change, potentially leading to extreme flooding downstream in India or possibly water shortages or drought, depending, that India could ascribe what are climate-driven impacts to bad behavior on China's part through its damming of the river or other things that could then lead to a greater bit of conflict or a conflagration on the border. We did some work last year with the Woodwell Climate Center in Massachusetts, where we took their climate scientists and our national security experts, and we looked at that, that China-India border, we looked at the Arctic, and we looked at North Korea. And in all of those places where we already have high national security concerns, even without climate in the picture, when you add climate change into the picture, it gets that much riskier. The Arctic is another place where as the ice melts and the waterways become more, you're able to move through them more easily. Russia becomes very interested in controlling those waterways, taking advantage of access to resources and minerals. But also Russia gets a little worried as well because that ice forms a very nice natural security border for it on the north. But as it melts, then they perhaps feel less secure. They feel the need to further militarize the Arctic for their own protection. And you just raise the risk of accidents, you raise the risks of miscalculations, misunderstandings, you got China up there as well. So it's, it's those kind of geographies, right, that are already super high tension, and climate just makes it more so. That worries me a lot. I could, I could go on. There are other things that worry me too, but, but that's, that's at the top of the list. <laughs> All right. No, I, yeah, we could just yeah start really depressing people, but <laughs> no, we've got more ground to cover here. I was thinking about this question, and I guess bear with me with it. And I'm old enough to have gone through some major national security concerns as a nation. So Cold War, right? We had the Cold War, and then it seemed like it pivoted to terrorism was the big one that really dominated the national security. And that's it still does to a certain extent. And there's different camps that evolve. And, you know, they talk about someone being a hawk or a dove when it comes to some of these issues. And do you sense that we're getting those kind of camps? You're an urban planner. There's not really camps forming around adaptation yet. But in the national security space, do you feel that you are getting these camps that are approaching it differently? Anything like that happening? Mm, that's a good question. I don't, I haven't seen camps in the national security space. I think a place where you see some camps emerging are around the role of engaging with China on, on climate issues. And I think it's set up as a false, what I would consider a false binary between either you cooperate with China on climate change, or you compete with them, and you don't cooperate on climate change. And I and I think on both sides, there's perhaps an overestimation of how much the U.S. can actually control China's behavior in relation to emissions and climate. And I think a better way of approaching it is to understand what are China's climate security vulnerabilities and how is it thinking of climate itself. 
I don't know. This isn't, I just haven't seen much in the way of camps yet, other than there are folks who really strongly believe that climate change needs to be better integrated into the national security apparatus. And those who will point to something like what's happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine right now and say, see, no, no, it's just traditional security issues still matter the most. And climate is a much lower priority than, say, conventional war with an adversary or competitor. And my response to that is it's not an either or, it's actually a a both. And you'll be better at competing with your adversaries if you build a climate strong national security apparatus. Okay, so that, this is how I was thinking about it. You could just mm-hmm. <laughs> tell me how why I'm so wrong. The, the more hawkish position <laughs> it, it inevitably would be on the executive branch that a president declares an, an what's the uh, the power that has emergency declaration or you know I think mm-hmm. Trump mm-hmm. did it on the border and yep. all sorts of executive actions. You know, you figure out what you I guess legally you can do, and you just really are starting to get aggressive that way. And I guess the dove position would be now we need Congress to legislate this, and it needs to be a kind of a groundswell of support that. We need a cap and trade, but it has to go through this process where it's sort of the people. And I could talk to different various people and they're like, all right, I'm on the uh, the hawkish side of things. Whereas others <laughs> like, well, we're not going to have long-term solutions unless we take the more pragmatic, dovish approach. And that's what I was kind of thinking around it. And I just think we're going to lean more toward that hawkish position in the coming years if we just don't make any traction. And I'm not necessarily recommending we do an emergency declaration or whatever the president can do. But I just find that interesting. If we think climate change is as serious as it is, then those kind of things are inevitably going to be talked about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, I mean, you hear President Biden and you've heard Secretary Kerry say that climate change is an existential risk, right, to the United right. States. And so if that's true, then what do your actions match that assessment, particularly when it comes to national security? And certainly at this point, they don't. I think one of the challenges, though, in the national security community in particular is you want this to really achieve change, right? You need people to understand how it makes their job, their core job easier or better, or they can do a better job of it if they bring climate change into the equation. You want the logistician, for example, in the U.S. military to understand that if he or she looks at, you know, her supply chain management and brings that climate lens and realizes, oh, this, you know, supply chain I was going to count on if we went to war in the Indo-Pacific, for example, I'm just making this up, you know, if that actually won't be there because we'll have so many typhoons that I can't actually move things through the way I thought, and she realizes that, that bringing that climate lens helps her do her job better, then she'll, con- she'll do it and she'll continue to do it, not because an executive order tells her to, but because it is better for her core duties. And so I think to sustain things in the long run, you really need to build that workforce across the U.S. government that is bought in and committed because presidents change and executive orders can be reversed and undone. And and when that happens, what you don't want then is all the climate work to go away because we were only doing it because the president forced us to do it. But people continue to do it. And you saw this in the Defense Department during the Trump administration. People continue to do it because they know that they can't do, they can't protect the nation, for example, or they can't understand how our competitors are moving through the world if we don't tackle the climate issue as well. So yeah, it's tough uh, for sure. Well, it's a good segue into, I want to talk about communicating climate change. And this is, you know, I think something mm-hmm. that we all struggle with. And But just related to that, what you were just talking about, I think of the various metrics in the climate change space, and you've probably seen those like, 
a one degree Celsius change is going to mean these things on the ground. Two degree is going to be the, and like when you get to four or five, we're talking about like humanity is in a really dire position. You've seen those, right? Like the, yeah, the scientists yep, have done yep. that. Why can't we line those with, and again, shows my lack of understanding, maybe the national security space, but you have like DEFCON 1, DEFCON 2, DEFCON 3. <laughs> Why can't yeah. we start elevating these climate things along those lines? Because when someone says, you know, we went down the DEFCON 2, and I forgot what that exactly means, but we're on the brink <laughs> of nuclear war. Let's yeah. get serious about it. And we, I still think people are tiptoeing around it, and that, that, that's problematic. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the challenges is we're, I mean, it's not just the national security community. It's also the political environment. Everything is so yeah, focused yeah. on short term, right? What's happening in the next weeks, months, maybe six months to a year, but certainly not a five year, 10 year time horizon, right? And so it's hard to get that focus on what that will mean in the future, how my decisions today, right, will actually impact this future going forward. I think you get a little bit more of that in the U.S. military because they are making investments in, in weapon systems, right, today that they'll have to live with for the next 20 to 30 years. And so if you can show them that, hey, you can have a weapon system that's better able to operate in these harsher environments that where the temperatures are going to be like nothing you've ever seen before if you aren't reliant on fossil fuels or, or whatever it is, right? You can, you can make that case. But the overall warning risk just still, I still think at the end of the day, for better or for worse, or frankly, for worse, you have too many folks in the national security community say, yeah, yeah, I realize it's important, but Russia is really important, or China is really important, or Iran is really the most important thing. And so climate will come after that and not seeing the connections there. And I think that's all about education and changing. I mean, it's a different, you get a different answer on that question if you ask more junior people, frankly, than more senior people. And more junior people are more understanding, I think, of climate change as, as a risk. So I think there's a generational bit there that, that will be helpful, but I don't know that it'll come fast enough if I put on my pessimistic hat. <laughs> well, those are all great points. And one of the things I want to talk about with communicating, and I think so many people in the media are trying to approach, and I'm guilty of this too, I think making it less urgent than it needs to be. But I, I, occasionally you see those articles, okay, what climate change is going to mean to the wine industry, right? It's just oh, going uh -huh. to impact. And you're like, well, that sucks. I don't want wine or the coffee. And then I'm like, okay, well, we pivot back over to the national security discussion and you don't say what's terrorism going to do to the wine industry. And that it would just, I guess, you know what I'm saying though? It would just take right, some of the right, wind right. out of the urgency. And, and I don't knock a reporter being like, all right, this here's a story, but climate change, there, there's not that urgency baked into what we're doing here. And I'm sure that makes your job difficult there, even at the center. Yeah, I think so. And I think that, you know, or, or that I think another challenge with the climate security story sometimes is like, well, that happens over there in those places that are already disasters anyway, right? That isn't going to affect us here at home. And so, yeah, it's too bad. And yeah, there'll be more conflict and fighting, but that really isn't a U.S. national security concern. And so bringing them through, you know, skeptics through the process of understanding, no, no, those are concerns to us here at home, not only because there are spillover effects, there's issues with potential migration, right, which can be a real challenge on systems that aren't set up to manage millions of people moving around the world because of climate impacts, but also the impacts in our, as we talked about at the very beginning, in our backyard of the, the flooding and the fires and the drought here in the United States, 
pose real direct security risks. I worry a lot about the Western United States, for example, and choices the government has to make about who gets water in certain river basins, right? And I think the Klamath River Basin is one example of this in Oregon, where last summer, the federal government closed a dam to keep water up in the northern part of the river, which meant farmers down south in the river didn't get the water they wanted. And white nationalist extremists tried to convince some of these farmers to go and blow up the dam (laughs) Um, because they wanted to, to move the water through. And it didn't happen, fortunately. And the farmers were like, no, thank you. We're not going to do that. But there are fissures there that I think can be exploited and as these impacts get more and more intense and more frequent, right, that it's, it, those risks grow. And so, you know, I wrote a piece last year saying if I were an intelligence analyst in a foreign government, right, analyzing the United States, I would absolutely be looking at climate issues as something that could contribute to political polarization and instability in, in the United States, and I would be developing indicators to monitor and watch uh, that could show that there was more more risk of instability. And I think it's, that might sound far-fetched to some people, but I again, you look at last summer and you look at the floods in Tennessee or the floods in Germany, you know, places that you expect not to have lots of people die, right, due to, to climate impacts, but people did because these shocks are just coming into systems that are already stressed due to lots of other challenges. And and they're coming in a way that are out of our historical experience, right? We don't have past precedent to look to. And so, I mean, yeah, I I wanted to keep drinking coffee too and, and good wine from the United right. States, but I wish there were a few more articles that did a little more hard thinking about what some of the the risks at home might be. A lot of this too is political theater. And I, and I think about terrorism and like, okay, 10 people, this is a tragedy. I'm not trying to mean that, but okay, 10 people were killed because there was an explosion somewhere and that was a national security issue and CIA's on it. And then you have, okay, this country is at risk of drought where a million people are at risk of starvation. It's like, okay, what just happened there? And the National <laughs> Climate Assessment, I mean, you're obviously very familiar with that, an important uh-huh. process. And president why isn't the cia director coming in here's the national climate assessment look at all this these serious <laughs> issues and a lot of this is political theater that you're you're conveying a message and we're not seeing that it's a bunch of volunteers that are sent on detail great scientists great people doing work there but you know how that process works it's like all right they're kind of trudging along and it, it's not the same thing as okay you're preparing this top secret report that the president is going to be briefed on and, you know, that theater actually could benefit the, I guess, the broader issue that we're doing here. I mean, I, I might be over <laughs> it, I'm just no, trying no, to No, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I mean, and part of it is, you know, our national security apparatus was all stood up post-World War II, yeah. right? And and for that world, which was a different world than yeah. we live in today. And, you know, things changed somewhat after 9-11, but still very much focused on either states as a threat or individuals, right, or extremist groups. This idea of, you know, what's some folks call actorless risks like climate change or like pandemics of things that can cross borders. And there isn't one country or one person you can target to, to manage it. I think are really still very hard for the national security community and the, the country to, to grapple with. And I agree. I mean, I think that 
things like the National Climate Assessment should be given the same gravity as the annual threat assessment when the Director of National Intelligence goes to Congress to go say all the bad things around the world that are threatening the United States, right? (laughs) I think that would make a difference. I think of what happened at the border. And, you know, when President Trump did that emergency declaration, there was a lot of people challenging and I'm forgetting some of the details, but I think completely irresponsible thing he was doing that wasn't this crisis that they were making it out to be, but, you know, some portions of the media were making it. But you had people like in northern Wisconsin who were losing sleep because what was happening at the border. I live... 50 miles from the border and things were just fine here in Tucson. <laughs> Never. It was a crisis, but they elevated it. They put they all hands on deck and we're going to make up this artificial crisis. And some people are going to argue with that. But we, here we have climate change. This is a real crisis backed up mm-hmm. by scientists after scientists. And yet, you know, some political leaders just don't want to, I don't know if they want to, I recognize the dangers of putting people on high alert all the time. We have to look at this at the long haul, but there's more creative ways to get this elevated and we're not doing those at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think, I, I think one of the challenges, I mean, there are a lot of challenges. I think the fact of political polarization that already exists makes it challenging. I think our communication systems and cable news and all of that make it challenging. And I think the fact that climate impacts in the U S hit different communities differently that sometimes it's hard to have a cohesive national narrative, right? So if you live in Louisiana, your climate impacts and risks are much different than if you live in northern Wisconsin, for example, where where I'm from. And so sometimes I think building a national story around that is, I don't know, politicians find find challenging to do. But I, I, I do think there's opportunity there to talk about it in a national security frame that can build across some of those partisan or polarized bridges in a way that then doesn't do things like I do worry sometimes when you bring the climate security lens to the topic, like we don't want to frame it as though people who have to migrate due to climate impacts are a threat to the United States, right? The climate migrants as a threat and, and the need to close off borders or anything like that. So I think it's it's delicate, but I think there are concrete ways to do it that could drive more action, I, I hope. These are kind of two related questions, and you alluded to it, but the idea of baking in climate policies between presidential administrations. And on that note, I I did an episode in Senator Coons is they're working on legislation on developing a national adaptation plan. And I had the writer, the author of that legislation, come on and talk about I think that's a fantastic idea. And I was encouraging them to come up just as you were discussing. Maybe there's a need for a national communication plan that could be part of that. What are your thoughts around that? Is that something is the the report that you released? How much value do you see in a national adaptation plan? Absolutely. We included that as one of our recommendations is to develop a national adaptation plan that kind of looks across the tools in our tool belt, right? Looks across the risks that the U.S. faces and, and builds that plan and then develops the strategy for implementation. I think that's critical and an important way for the U.S. to prepare to manage these risks. So we fully support that and, and think there's national security import in, in doing something like that. Absolutely. And I think they're designing too, because I think about what you're doing and what, you know, DOD, and a lot of times you're not going to be in the same platform or I guess playground discussing adaptation issues. And I think there needs to be more interfaces where kind of different groups, different sectors are coming together and having those conversations. And I think an adaptation plan would be if done well, could, could encourage that sort of interfacing. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think part of the role that DOD can play, because it is so big, because its budget is so big, right, is it can really drive 
market demand. It can drive a movement in the communities in which bases exist, right? And so it can be a key player and we can think of new ways of leveraging DOD's assets and tools to support such an adaptation plan, right? That I think are just critical. Here's just more your own professional development. So you're, you've got all these workshops and meetings and you're talking with national security people, but do you feel you integrate well with the broader sort of adaptation universe? Are there things that you do or do you kind of stay in, in your, your lane? How, how are you engaging with the adaptation space? Yeah. You know, there's, I, I'm sure there is more that I could be doing. Right. And I, I mean, I learn so much every time I talk to folks who are out of the national security community. And, and as you said, planners and urban planners and folks working on flood risk in the U.S., for example. Um, I find I learn a lot from from those folks. I actually, I serve on a a board at my alma mater, Smith College, on their environmental and ecological design board. And I love going to those meetings because it's not national security at all, but it's talking about often adaptation and, and how to tackle these issues. I like to engage so I can learn and learn new things. But I think there are so many things, frankly, so many best practices for adaptation that can be taken from what that community is doing here in the United States, for example, and think through when we, you know, talk about what an embassy or like a country team with USAID and State Department people should be doing in an Indo-Pacific country to help that country manage adaptation. There's lots of bridges that could be built there, frankly, to draw on the expertise and knowledge of the, the broader adaptation community that's not so involved in foreign policy. Great. And so I have a lot of university listeners that they're figuring out and they want to get into the adaptation space. Any advice to them that they're like, well, you know what, maybe national security is an area that I want to go into. Any kind of career paths? I know you had a very <laughs> rich and, and long and it, there weren't adaptation programs when you were going to school. And <laughs> no. um, But what advice would you give if someone wants to get in the national security space around adaptation? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I would encourage them to, in, in addition to building adaptation skills, doing an adaptation program is to think about some perhaps region of the world that you're particularly interested in, or, you know, the United States and, and think through how, what kind of internships you might look for with the federal government, the Department of Homeland Security, for example, or something with the Defense Department or the intelligence community. I mean, the great thing about the U.S. intelligence community is they take people with all different kinds of backgrounds, but if a strong writer and a critical thinker, right? But they want people that are that come from all different walks of life because to analyze the world, you need people from all different places and, and different backgrounds. I would encourage as much as possible to kind of build a multidisciplinary background with those core adaptation skills, but then also think through how you might apply them in a part of the world or where you might go to learn how the national security community works a bit better. And learn some other languages that probably be more in demand, even those adaptation skills. So um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What advice would you give adaptation planners? And they could come in any form, like using the resources that you use. A lot of times people are going to listen to this. Well, that's talking about national security. And I want to take a first crack at an answer. Just maybe that'll give you an idea too. But I, I was, I was reading the report and sort of the recommendations that you were making about how the different agencies and you you know, maybe you create a climate change position, like the idea of institutionalizing adaptation. Your report did a great job. I thought that was fantastic. So that's how I would kind of answer, like, how would someone out there that's not in the national security space benefit from the work that you're doing? But do you have any additional advice? Like, well, you know, come and take a look at our stuff and it might be helpful to you. Yeah, I would say come and take a look at our stuff. And I mean, we've got so much. And if there's a a region or a topic that you're interested in, 
you know, if you want connections to folks within the, I mean, Department of Defense is vast and they have people working on almost anything you could ever conceive of, right? I mean, they have people who work on adaptation in quite a bit of detail. And so look to build some connections across different agencies or disciplines from what you've worked on before. Take a look at our reports, as Doug says, and and see what in there rhymes with what you're doing and think about it from a slightly different perspective. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Last question I ask everybody, if you could recommend one guest to come on the podcast, who would it be? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I would recommend, you know, I would recommend a woman named Kaylee Ober, who is looking at climate change and migration. And she looks at adaptation issues related to my, how does the world need to adapt to manage with millions more migrants around the world due to climate change, which I think is the key question for the United States. And she's, she's brilliant on this stuff. And, and I would love to listen to her talk to you about this issue. She wrote the World Bank report on climate migration, which is seen as kind of a keystone report on the topic. Oh, fantastic. Aaron, this has been fantastic. It's been more fun and interesting than I even thought it would be. I just couldn't control myself. I had to take a bunch of questions off, but thank you so much. Thanks for the work that you're doing. Thank you, Doug. And thanks for the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Okay, actors, that is a wrap. Thanks to Aaron Sikorsky for coming on the podcast. I really love that discussion. Some of the most interesting work around adaptation is emerging from the national security sector. For those who have listened to the podcast for a while, I'm always interested in finding ways to elevate the urgency around climate change and specifically adaptation. Aaron and I dug into some opportunities, but also why there are some intractable issues that make it hard to elevate climate change in this space. And turnover in presidents obviously is a unique challenge, even if they represent the same party. Even if you're not in the national security space, I challenge you to find creative new ways to talk about climate adaptation. This is serious business, folks. I think many of us are still finding our voices and we're not as confident as we should be when talking about climate change and the threat it represents. I was very encouraged to hear younger professionals in the national security arena taking the threat very seriously. Their voices are desperately needed. Definitely check out the Center for Climate and Security's website to find a ton of resources that could help you start to frame the issue in a way that resonates. Thanks again, Aaron. Okay, I'm always hearing from listeners that they have just started listening to the podcast in the last few months or in the last year, and and that means they've missed out on my archive. There's a ton of stuff in there. So I'm going to dig in the vault when I can and highlight two previous episodes so you can go back and listen to some great content. So in episode 123, I hosted returning guest climate fiction expert Dr. Amy Brady. This was Amy's third time on the podcast, and we catch up on topics like climate writers reaching out to scientists. Can cli-fi influence people's behavior to take action on climate change? How the TV and movie industry are taking note of climate fiction and the prevalence of climate justice in cli-fi. Also, in episode 108, I hosted Dr. Jisun Park an assistant professor at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA. We talked about Jason's research showing how increased temperatures can negatively impact student academic performance. Also, rising temperatures can lower worker productivity, seriously impacting the labor market. We also discussed the positives and negatives of adaptation solutions like air conditioning to these emerging problems. Jason also shared how UCLA is training the next generation of adaptation professionals. Okay, don't forget to go check out Wondrium, the streaming service where you can watch or listen to lectures, programs, and courses. There's a free two-week trial. Use the link they generated for the podcast, wondrium.com backslash adapts. Check it out. And there's a link in my show notes. Okay, so what's your adaptation story? Do people that you engage with understand what is climate adaptation? 
Are you finding that webinars and white papers really aren't resonating in ways that promote your work? Well, consider telling your story in a podcast. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work, consider sponsoring a whole episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I go on location and record these sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify experts that represent the amazing work that you're doing. Some of my partners in this process have been NRDC, University of Pennsylvania, Wharton, World Wildlife Fund, UCLA, Harvard, MIT, and various corporate clients. It's a chance to share your story with my listeners who represent the most influential people in the adaptation space. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. Previous sponsors have used the podcast to communicate with their own members, board members, and even funders. My previous sponsors have found the process pretty fun since there's a lot of creativity involved. Putting a podcast together is a lot more exciting and satisfying than putting a paper together. Please reach out. Let's have a conversation so you can learn more. Also, if you are interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. Folks, I speak a lot and you're going to enjoy this. I have done keynote presentations and they are a lot of fun. Think about it. Think about the conferences that you host or you participate in. You're always looking for a unique and engaging and entertaining speaker. That's me. And I will talk about adaptation. It's this incredibly important emerging subject. You can reach out at americadapts at gmail.com. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, email me. If you want to just say you have a particular episode you really enjoyed, let me know. I love hearing from you. I love hearing what work you do, hearing from people all over the world in the climate space. And even if you're not a climate professional, reach out. I want to see how the podcast brings value to your life. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.